From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. And welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, one of the strongest sectors in the stock market this year has been the banks. Uh, They're up 33% as a group year to date in the S&P 500, and they're kicking off their earnings season this week. We'll talk about that with a veteran fund manager who has a specialty in banks about what he's looking for to sustain this rally. But first, a special announcement from Charlie Pellet. Vildana is off this week, so this week's mystery co-host is Felice Marantz. Felice is an editor for Bloomberg Market's live blog. She's a native of Newark, New Jersey, a graduate of Yale, and the founder of Bloomberg News' first bureau in Israel in the 1990s. That's back when Regan had hair so long... He looked like a member of the Spin Doctors. Fleece, that's that is absolutely true about my hair. I don't believe you started that bureau in the nineties. You must have been a teenager back then. Well, thank you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but what was that like starting the bureau in, in Israel? That must that was an exciting time to start a bureau in Israel. Tell us a little bit, a bit about that. It was incredibly exciting. Bloomberg News had very few people, and the uh, what was then called the peace process was unfolding, and Israel was becoming more of a focus, both politically and for businesses. The high-tech boom was yet to come, but it was just starting. And Bloomberg really wanted someone on the ground in Israel, and I was lucky enough to become that person, and then to eventually open and build the bureau. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, what a pretty historic time, I guess, uh, to be starting a, a bureau. But Fleece, also, I know something that excites you as much as those glory days is uh, Bank Stocks Earnings Week kicking off this week. And uh, we've got a great guest to help us break it down, what to expect, what what to look for in bank earnings. He is a portfolio manager and chairman of Davis Advisors. His name is Chris Davis. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Michael. It's good to be here. So we're Recording this on Wednesday, just so our listeners know, we won't have all the earnings in our hands to to dissect, but we did get JP Morgan's earnings, which are usually a pretty good indication of, of what to expect. And I'm curious how you look at it from your perspective, because, you know, earnings in general can be noisy the last couple of years with all the, you know, the boom and bust from the pandemic. I feel like financials uh, especially have a lot of noise in the numbers. You know, JP Morgan had a a uh, huge release of loan loss reserves, uh, $2.1 billion. They had a strong M&A quarter, really strong IPO quarter. Seems like the stock market's a little disappointed, though. I guess it's it's focusing on the loan growth. Um, but 
Talk to us specifically, uh, you know, about banks in general, what you sort of look through for when you go through these reports, uh, given sort of, you know, you can have a booming trading quarter for a bank one quarter and then it's back to, you know, normal the next quarter. What are sort of the underlying things you look for uh, as a long term buy and hold type of investor? Well, the nature of bank stocks in particular and financial stocks in general is that there is so much noise in any one quarter that it really doesn't matter. And it's part not just uh, 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 because of the long-term nature of the businesses, but it's because so much of the earnings reflect estimates. So a nefarious management would have lots of flexibility to goose short-term earnings or or uh, sandbag them. You see it in insurance companies with reserves and, of course, in banks and so on. So what really matters over time as a financial stock investor, and I started our financial fund more than 30 years ago. It's sort of hard to believe. And wow. what's amazing is that that, that fund is, is, it's not just outperformed the financial index, but it's outperformed the S&P 500 because within financial services, there's such a range of business models and positioning. And what we look for in quarterly earnings are signs of culture. Signs of culture, because financial services is an industry where culture, a conservative culture, culture is actually a sustainable competitive advantage, right? When companies have made conservative decisions in the past, it gives them more flexibility in the present. Whereas when companies have been aggressive in the past, they end up being really strained in the present. So what you saw in JP Morgan, for example, was a wonderful sign of a conservative culture, right? It was a company that had over-reserved in the past. They had been too conservative. That is a hallmark of Jamie Dimon that goes back not just, you know, one quarter or one year, but goes back all the way to his first annual report, which people should read, that he wrote when he became the CEO of Bank One. Um, It's a culture of We'd rather take the hits up front. We want to be transparent. We'd be conservative. We don't want to be playing catch up. So with all of the noise around current quarter earnings, the real story is this, is that for more than a decade since the financial crisis, everybody was terrified that banks are risky, risky businesses. And people were unable to recognize that the financial crisis wasn't a recession. It was the sort of thing that's happened once every 50, 60 years. It was a one-time reset. And the companies that came through that were safer, more regulated, better capitalized, more conservative than any time in my career. And yet for the next decade, even though these banks built their profits, you know, the the bank percentage of S&P earnings has grown for a decade. And yet the market caps as a percentage of earnings have fallen for a decade. Right. So nobody believed it. Right. That nobody believed that they somehow they were stronger, uh, that they weren't risky. Covid was the ultimate test. And the banks, banking sector as a whole passed it with flying colors. They were part of the solution. They were providing liquidity. They were working with customers. They were doing just what banks are supposed to do. And by the way, have done for most of the last hundred years, just not during the Depression and not during the financial crisis. Those were one time huge resets. So I think what we've seen here is the beginning of a change in the perception investors have towards this sector. So any noise around the quarter is just going to be noise. 
the real bottom line is that people are going to recognize these are fortress institutions, enormously resilient, enormously well-capitalized, enormously profitable, conservative in nature, and therefore dramatically undervalued relative to other sectors where investors have that perception, like utilities or consumer products or something like that. So I think we're going to have a decade of changing perception, and we're only in the second inning. I think Jamie Dimon would be really happy to hear what you have to say there, Chris. That uh, was an excellent uh, case for bank stock uh, rallies. But also for culture. And, you know, I met Jamie when, you know, I started my career 32 years ago. I've uh, invested with him all along the way. Uh, from commercial credit to Primerica to Travelers to Travelers Aetna to Travelers Solomon Smith Barney to Travelers Solomon Smith Barney City, you know, uh, and then to to Bank One. Um, he def- he really embodies what I mean when I talk about culture as a competitive advantage, uh, because there's a whole culture in financial services that can evolve based on one very simple fact which is you don't know your cost of goods sold when you sell your product. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's an estimate. And therefore, if people want to make their numbers and they want to look good, they can report whatever they can. And that filters all the way through an organization. And when you have somebody at the top that says, we're going to do things the right way, I understand your business, I'm getting into the weeds on it, it begins to build a culture. You see the same thing at Berkshire Hathaway. You see the same thing at places like Capital One where you have very defined cultures uh, where the people at the top speak the same language as the people in the trenches making those estimates. And therefore, there's a credibility and a thoughtfulness about how they uh, approach the business. And there's a deep understanding at the top uh, that the CEO must be, must be the chief risk officer. Somebody else might have that title, but you're in big trouble if the CEO of a complex bank is not and does not think of him or herself as the chief risk officer. And really understanding the nuance of risk, whether it's in derivatives, whether it's in interest rate curves or forward yield curves or swaps or or credit concentrations or correlated risks. Uh, if you don't have a CEO that understands that, you're, you're going to be in a world of pain sooner or later. And so I I love the financial sector as a whole. But it's not a sector I would want to index. It's one where you really want to be looking for those companies where culture is a defining advantage, where they're what we call growth stocks in disguise. Lately, I would say they're utilities in disguise. Uh, it used to be an insult to call a company a utility. But last I checked, the utility index is at 20 times earnings. The banking index <laughs> is at like 12. Mm-hmm. And I would much rather own the banks because, for one thing, many of them are still under earning based on interest rates. Uh, they have huge excess capital and their dividend payouts, instead of being 60, 70, 50, 60, 70, 80 percent, as they are in a lot of utilities, the dividend payouts might be 35. So it's 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 a wonderful time to be in this sector. But it's, again, not one that you want to throw a dart. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, Chris, I, I think bank earnings are interesting, regardless of what you're invested in, just because they give you a good lens into sort of a, a lot of macro trends. You know, and I wonder, you know, are, are there any takeaways? Like, obviously, it's early in the season with, with only really JP Morgan to look at, but are there any takeaways from, from you? And, and specifically, I wonder, you know, when you think about sort of the, the health of the corporate and the consumer balance sheet coming out of this re- recession, both are really strong, you know. Uh, a lot of companies raised, you know, money to to sort of gird against uh, the downturn. Consumer savings rate went through the roof, so there's a lot of money just sitting on deposit. I mean, does that, in a way, bode ill for for the prospects for loan growth? You know, if there's all this cash in in people's accounts, is there less of a need to borrow, and and is that a risk at all, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. I, I it's hard to see a lot of evidence of surging. Uh, loan demand. And, you know, we can say, okay, well, that's a negative. If somebody's bearishly inclined, they're going to beat that drum. And my feeling is if you own a company that's generating 10% of its market cap in distributable capital every year, you're going to get a 10% return with zero growth. Now, zero growth, companies don't have zero profit growth simply because they don't have loan growth, right? They could have very slow loan growth and they could have much better profit growth because spreads begin to widen after a decade of compression, for example. They could have real earnings growth. And I think maybe the most important topic we should spend some time on is fintech, the risk of fintech to banks, what it means for the big banks, where the risks are. But what I would say is that my first takeaway is that uh, you can have an enormous amount of earnings growth from a reduction in the cost structure that comes from the intelligent application of technology. Now, we could be crass and say, oh, it's closing branches and reducing people with computers and so on, but it's much more elegant than that. You're providing a solution to a client or a customer that is more satisfactory to them, it's more flexible and cheaper to deliver. So I think you could have long-term growth from a reduction in a lot of operating expenses. So you have interest rate spreads, you have a a reduction in operating expenses, lots of different ways. But when you start at a 10% earnings yield, you don't need a lot of growth. And I think that's what people are going to begin to internalize. Oh, well, wait a minute. When I own a utility, I don't have a lot of growth. A lot of consumer products companies are, you know, trumpeting if they get 4% growth or 3% growth. I mean, I I think the banks have done much better at half the multiple and a willingness to return that capital to shareholders. So your per share growth is going to be a lot greater, even with no loan growth. So, you know, with bank investors, there's always something to worry about. But if you look at the big categories of risk, regulatory risk, liquidity risk, interest rate risk, credit risk, regulatory risk, I mean, these are all about as low as we've seen in the last decade or two. Uh, So we have a lower risk profile with a gap in the valuation of banks versus the S&P that's just about as wide as it's ever been. Uh, Yeah, the bank stocks are up a lot, but so are the earnings because the earnings were so depressed last year. Uh, And so 
I think that that you know if people want to hate on them, they can hate on them, and it doesn't matter because their their valuation is sort of with a, an advantage that gives them control of their own destiny. The lower the valuation, the higher the return on the share repurchase, for example. So banks are worth more at 12 times earnings than they'd be worth at 15 times earnings. I do think that there are a lot of very interesting macro takeaways in bank earnings. JP Morgan was faced with a bunch of questions, including a heated discussion about inflation, supply chain dynamics, and bank regulations, with uh, the Fed's Randall Quarles stepping down. I wondered if you had any particular thoughts about any of those broader issues. Well, Felice, it's 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 a good question. I certainly inflation and the specter of inflation and whether it's transitory or whether it's permanent is going to be an issue that's going to occupy all investors for the next 24 months or so. Uh, we just will get more data. I, I always say I, I am inherently a worrier that invests because I feel that when I manifest all of those worries and I think about what do I want to do, the answer is not whole own cash or bonds uh, with, you know, 2% yields and things like that. Uh, I want to own businesses that have a proven record of resiliency and of adapting to different macroeconomic environments. I would say without getting overly promotional about banks that I can imagine a scenario where investors, short-term investors start saying, wait a minute, banks are one of the few sectors where we don't have to worry about supply constraints. Like we don't have to worry about, you know, oh my God, they couldn't get parts. So they're going to have to ship fewer cars or fewer iPhones. Uh, they're going to have to cancel flights or they can't get labor, right? So I actually can imagine a scenario where people say, wait a minute, banks are kind of in a sweet spot uh, where we don't really have to worry about their earnings the way we suddenly have a lot more unpredictability in the earnings, even of companies that had been viewed as very reliable, like Apple, uh, because of some of these supply constraints. So I actually think that the macro questions that they were tussling about at JP Morgan are going to be with us for a long time because it's a parlor game. It's like predicting who's going to win the Super Bowl. I, I'm not a sports fan, so I, I couldn't even name likely contenders. But, but what I would say is nobody knows. And yet a lot of time is going to be spent discussing it. And then, you know, we'll flip the coin and sometime down the road, somebody's going to say, I was a genius. I knew all along. Nobody knows. Nobody, there's no period in history we can look at for what will be the the outcomes of this incredibly aggressive monetary policies. You know, as I say, I'm by nature conservative. I don't like people borrowing beyond their means. I don't like governments spending our grandchildren's money. I don't think it's a sensible idea. It may work out fine. Uh, I don't know. But what I know is that no matter what, in an uncertain world, I want to own a portfolio of businesses that can adapt. I own businesses that adapted to stagflation, businesses that uh, adapted to recessions, uh, businesses that adapted to, you know, the geopolitical chaos uh, of the the 60s and 70s. Uh, uh, So 
Resiliency and adaptability is, I think, what should be at top of mind for investors. And as they start thinking of those characteristics, of course, they're wonderful businesses like Applied Materials or Intel or uh, but and businesses like Raytheon. It's hard to imagine a world where Raytheon doesn't have a lot of value. I don't I don't care if they're if we're buying, you know, missile defense systems in seashells or Bitcoin or uh, <laughs> there's huge value for what they sell. And it is going to be resilient as a business model. And I think what people are coming to realize is really the same is true of banks. You know, a lot of our banks are in their second century. Some of them are even in their third century. Uh, uh, basically, providing the same service, selling the same product with the same business model. You'd be hard pressed to name any other companies with that record of longevity. And yet here they are as the cheapest sector in the S&P 500. You know, Chris, as far as predicting the Super Bowl, I, I will predict it probably won't be the Jets. I'll, I'll go that far <laughs> as, as, as to tell you. But, uh, but I wanted to, you know, get back to, as you said, uh, you know, your funds are actively managed. You, you don't believe uh, uh, financials is, a, is a place, uh, the place to get passive. I did notice uh, Capital One, a big holding in both the Davis Financial Fund and the, uh, and the Davis New York Venture Fund, which I believe is your, your biggest fund, right? Um, and, and I, I know part of that is obviously just because Capital One's been appreciating in value, like outperforming everything uh, in the space. You know, on the other hand, you're clearly not reducing the stake or, or removing it as your as your top weight. So, so what's it doing so well uh, for such outperformance, and, and what what has you comfortable enough about that company to to keep it with a pretty heavy weight in both funds? It's funny. I spent a day with the co-founder who has since retired of Capital One uh, just last week. Um, well, Capital One is one of the only major banks uh, in the U.S. that's still run by the founder. Now, we talked early about culture, but what's really extraordinary about Capital One is from its very beginning, Capital One was not a bank. It was a data science company. It always has been. It had no branches. It had no customers. And yet somehow managed to become one of the largest credit card companies in the country. No branches, no customers. How? Well, they used data. They target marketed. They customized offers to consumers based on characteristics that they were able to surmise about consumers based on their occupation or their zip code. And they would say, you know, why on earth do banks offer one credit card for all their customers? Some customers are very interested in revolving. Some are very interested in points. Some are very interested in prestige or affinity. People have all different considerations. And yet every bank had a one size fits all credit card. So Rich Fairbanks and Nigel Morris come along. Uh, they launched Capital One. I was early in my career. Uh, uh, they were a division of another bank. Uh, then they were spun out uh, uh, and they were still a data science company when they started buying, buying branches, uh, not all that long ago relative to their history. And they did it because they realized that core funding had a huge advantage. They had relied in their historic history on securitizations to finance growth. But what they learned in some of the securitization crises uh, is that that market can be fickle. So they went the other way. They went into branches. So we think of Capital One, a lot of consumers think of Capital One because they see the, the, uh, the, the bank branch on the corner. But that's an accident of history. It is fundamentally a data science company. And the analogy I would give you is progressive in auto insurance, right? 
Progressive sells a commodity product that they have to file for the rates in states, by and large, historically through the same distribution channel as many other companies. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll pick on one, which was always a very high quality company, Ohio Casualty, because they were headquartered just about in the same town, selling a lot of the same products through the same distribution channels. And over a 20 year period, one compounded at 20 percent, one compounded at six. How's that possible? Well, culture, culture. And it wasn't just a culture of conservatism. It was a culture of innovation and using data and using science. And how can we predict what is the likelihood of you having a car accident based on the type of car or your occupation or your credit or all sorts of other things? And how can we give you a better deal? How can we customize? So we're a data rich company first. That's Capital One. So when I talked about all of the traditional risks facing banks, liquidity, credit, uh, regulation, uh, uh, interest rates, uh, and so on. Uh, I would say all of those risks are as low as I've seen in most of my career, but certainly in the last 15 years. The one risk that is the most important risk is disruption. It's technological disruption. So as you invest and you think about risk and reward, part of Capital One's model is that they are a very profitable institution because they are wonderful at generating high-yielding assets in a way that is difficult for others to imitate, and they have low-cost core funds. So they have a good core business. But then that's the opportunity. The risk, if banks have the biggest risk is financial, uh, uh, is technological disruption, then I would say among the major banks, Capital One is one of the lowest because it's baked into their DNA to innovate. If if they said tomorrow, you know what, we're going to have no branches. We're going to be entirely an internet bank, uh, uh, internet uh, uh, using media and data to market to come. That would be perfectly consistent with their culture. So that mindset, I think, is another reason that I think Capital One is a good. Now, to, in full disclosure, we have trimmed some Capital One in part because while it's always been a core holding, we bought so much uh, during the COVID crisis that the appreciation. Uh, we think it's important to run a diversified portfolio. You know, one of the dangers about the financial index that people don't realize is the index is like 40% in like four stocks. Yeah. People, when they buy an index, think, well, at least I'm getting diversification. You're not. In the, in the financial index, you're getting more concentration than in our financial sector fund. So I think that's a little too much risk uh, for my yeah. blood. So we do tend to tamp things back as, as they get very large. And we have a little bit with capital one. And although, as I say, still being run by the founder with that mindset is an extraordinary advantage. Plus they have a uh, pretty funny TV commercials. I'll give them that, Chris. I, I don't know if that plays into your thinking. <laughs> well, you know, those data scientists, what's impressive is they didn't vet the commercials for their humor. They vetted them based on this is what works. For And that they're very much an A-B testing mindset. I, I know a number of people, even in the mid-level ranks there, and they are math geeks and analytically inclined. It's a very different thing than the, the cigar-chomping, you know, three-piece suit banker uh, uh, mindset. So it is a very different culture.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Elise, you got one more good question for Chris before we go to crazy things? Sure. Your emphasis on fintech reminded me that Jamie Dimon had said the bank was willing to spend whatever it takes to compete. Do you think that JP Morgan can actually be more agile, more nimble, throw more money at fintech and really uh, dominate? Or do you see a different kind of disruptor coming to really shift the whole financial system, including with DeFi and uh, other sorts of technologies? Well, it's the right area to focus on, Police, I, I think it is amazing, though, to think about the amount of disruption that has been thrown at the banking sector in the last 30 or 40 years. Now, let me just give you a good example. The money market fund was invented. Now, if you can imagine a more dangerous innovation than the money market fund to the banking sector, wait a minute, I can offer customers higher interest rates with no risk because I'm only in government bonds. I don't need any branches. All of a sudden, you would have thought a vast sucking sound out of the banking sector of all of their liabilities, all of their deposits. Now, you know, these, you know, cigar chomping, uh, pizza eating hooligans at Solomon Brothers, you know, gin up the mortgage-backed security, right? And so all of a sudden, you've got the mortgage-backed security, asset-backed securities are invented. Well, there go all my assets. Another huge innovation. You know, Mike Milken and Boski, you know, they dream up the high-yield market. You know, there goes a lot of my corporate business. You know, then you get the ATM. I don't even need branches. Customers can come anywhere. And non-bank financials, you know, uh, GE and so on. So you've had a massive amount. Uh, the credit card banks, we mentioned Capital One, you know, these from a standing start, these three or four companies take 40% of the entire credit card industry. And yet here is the banking sector earning more money than it ever has in the past. And by the way, with as big or a bigger market share. So they have been amazing at sucking innovation into their core. Now, they do it partly by adapting. And I think Jamie is one of the best examples of somebody who has his eyes open. Brian Moynihan has been amazingly masterful. Bank America in rolling out their digital products. Venmo is a great technology. We all love Venmo. Zelle comes along. Well, you know, in technology, we think, oh, it should be winner take all. Venmo should win. Zelle's bigger than Venmo today, right? Yeah. So banking has not been that sort of winner take all Google model. They've been amazing. Now, if you wanted to be cynical, you'd say they also use regulation, right? Certainly we saw that in China with Ant Financial, right? Regulators get a little touchy when the financial system gets too unregulated and people start going cowboy. We saw it in peer-to-peer -peer lending, for example. So there have been a lot of cases in financial services history where that innovation is absorbed in. I would say the biggest thing that banks, uh, that positions banks well for withstanding the onslaught of fintech is this. In the classic innovator's dilemma, 
the large lumbering incumbent faces some innovation. And the trouble is to compete, they have to screw up their existing business and they don't want to do that. That's why it's called the innovator's dilemma. What do I do if I'd have to cut my prices? I'd have to change. In the case of banking and Bank America, there's no institution that can demonstrate this better than Bank America. Rolling their customers onto a digital experience is significantly reduces cost and enhances the customer experience and enhances customer stickiness, which reduces uh, churn, which further reduces cost. So unlike the typical innovator's dilemma, the incumbents are economically incentivized to jump right into the innovation. Meanwhile, when I look at the valuation of a lot of fintech companies, I think a lot of them are going to end up selling to banks because there's no way they can earn their way into their valuations. So a lot of them are now providing their services to the banking sector. Uh, they're becoming back engines for them, or they're helping them work their customer targeting mechanisms. And the banks have been very open to bringing it in. So we're watching it closely. You could see disruption. Schwab obviously led with a single product of discount brokerage back in the day and has become a financial juggernaut. That was a disruptor becoming a blue chip. Uh, uh, it's possible some of these single product companies, Chime, Rocket, uh, some of the buy now, pay later, Affirm, and so on. Uh, that they'll be able to parlay that single product focus into a broad customer relationship. Uh, we're going to watch it closely because it's a big risk. But I will tell you, the spending and the effectiveness of the spending by by J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank America in particular, I think Wells is trying hard to get on, uh, catch up. Um, it has been uh, it's been really impressive to see, and and the customers are using the products and they're all happy with them, and so. I think it is a little overhyped at the moment, but it is the area to watch. But the incumbent success and the economic models give me some confidence that it's not the classic innovator's dilemma of the incumbents facing a Hobson's choice of to compete, we have to give up our core. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Police, speaking of big lumbering incumbents and, and new agile disruptors, I think I'm the, I'm the big lumbering incumbent on this <laughs> podcast and you're the new innovative disruptor. So let's see if you can disrupt me with your craziest thing. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week? Well, my craziest thing actually parallels that in terms of Jamie Dimon calling Bitcoin worthless. I thought that was completely crazy with Bitcoin trading at $55,000. It's clearly not worthless. And there's an enormous infrastructure being built and everybody's using it and thinking about it. So I found that to be quite uh, the, the lumbering incumbent dilemma right there. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way of saying it. I'm going to pile on yours, uh, your crazy thing, because my, my crazy thing is related. And then we'll see what Chris thinks about all this. But Bank of England came out with a uh, report pointing out uh, cryptocurrency assets are now worth $2.3 trillion, uh, growth of more than 200% since the start of the year. That makes them twice as big as the subprime market uh, before the financial crisis, which is kind of mind-blowing. Um, knock on wood, we don't have a similar uh, a similar resolution. But Chris, it, leads, it makes me wonder, what do you think about this whole crypto economy and the potential disruption, decentralized finance? Um, is it something you're, you know, you think a lot about or is it a fad? You know, how are you thinking about it? Oh, no, I study it closely. And, and in fact, uh, 
I've had a long-term close friendship of somebody I admire greatly with Bill Miller going all the way back to the start of my career. And right, uh, right. we hosted an event together at the Santa Fe Institute about six years ago on the nature of cryptography and the nature of currency and stores of value and so on. Uh, so it's an area that I'm very familiar with. And I think it's perfectly plausible that these currencies replace gold. Uh, they digitize gold, for example. Um, but I will take the other side just to pick a fight with Felice, which I think is a dangerous idea, but <laughs> which is just to say that Jamie could be absolutely right that it's worthless in that it has no intrinsic value. You could say virtually, you could say the same about gold. Now, gold has some industrial value, but beyond its industrial value, you could argue it has an aesthetic value, uh, but it, it, it is really worthless. It has value because value is ascribed to it. So I think Jamie is right that the the value, there is no value. It is worthless. Uh, it doesn't have an intrinsic worth, but yet it could be very useful. And it could be useful as a digitized store or a value or it could create a, a better transaction system. So I think in a sense, both can be right. And, and it's dangerous when anybody closes their mind off. But I think in this case, maybe the word choice matters a little bit, uh, but I'm not certain. So, uh, but I do think it's an area that people should watch. Now, when people say, oh, how can you own Bank of New York? I mean, all of that custody business could be done with blockchain. Do you know what Bank of New York charges for their massive trillions and trillions of dollars of assets under custody? Their bonds, stocks, all that stuff under custody. You know what they charge for that? Less than one basis point. So, you know, for less than one basis point, I get all their systems, their regulation, their assurance. That's not a big, fat, disruptible pool. Now, Visa, on the other hand, I think should worry. And I think uh, I think mortgage, uh, you know, uh, I think real estate brokers should worry. There are lots of title insurance. There are lots of things that have big, fat spreads uh, that probably should be competed away. But, you know, in my lifetime, I started a commission. Uh, uh, the year I started was 10 or 12 cents a share for an institutional investor. And now it's about, you know, rounds to zero. And yet somehow a lot of broker dealers are doing just fine. So, they, you know, the financial system tends to adapt. And uh, I think Jamie Dimon will adapt uh, to if, if, if Bitcoin ends up digitizing gold, which after all, gold's market cap is something like 10 trillion, I think. So there's a lot of shift as that 10 trillion moves. And uh, uh, and I think that's what's sort of underway. That's a great point about Bill Miller. Talk about someone who made the, you know, caught on early at the right time. And, you know, a lot of a lot back when a lot of people were still very skceptical. And he he didn't catch on early. He would be the first to say, like, you know, we watched <laughs> well, it together though. go from 30 to 300. Then it went to yeah. 500 and then it fell back to 300. And and I think he would say that's when he did really all of his buying uh, was right after that conference that I mentioned. and. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it is amazing how one of Bill's great gifts is his flexibility. For a lot of us, if you've missed a 10 bagger, you don't want to look anymore. It's too unpleasant. It's an enormous <laughs> gift to be able to look at, you know, Amazon at 80 after it's gone from eight to 80 and still see it as a value. Uh, and sometimes that's, uh, you know, people confuse price and value. They think if something's gone up a lot, it's more expensive. Or sometimes they think it's more attractive because it's gone up a lot. The price has nothing to do. Uh, the past has nothing to do with the future of that. 
Very, very interesting. All right, Chris, have you seen anything crazy this week that you want to share? All right. I'm, I'm going to give you one that that is it's not really this week, but I'm just going to give it to you when we think about uh, uh, how the idea of price discipline has eroded. So I think the craziest thing in the market over the last several years has been dispersion. When you just get this crazy disparity in assets where you could you think there's rough comparability or visibility into their value, but they trade at wildly different prices. So international versus domestic, growth versus value. So here's my crazy one for you. If I was to take Tesla, Square, Shopify, Spotify, and Zoom, their market cap today is around 1.3 trillion. For the same 1.3 trillion, I could buy a big lion's share of our core portfolio. So I could buy 100% of Capital One, Applied Materials, Intel, Raytheon, JP Morgan Chase, Chubb, Bank of New York, Mellon, and American Express. 1.3 trillion, 1.3 trillion. Equal price. The first company is earning $9 billion. The second group of companies are earning $90 billion. <laughs> Now, you say, yes, but those first group of companies, they're growing. This is the crazy part. Let's do a little thought experiment. Let's take that group of companies, Tesla Square, Shopify, Spotify, Zoom. In the next 10 years, they grow as fast as Apple, Amazon, and Google grew in the last 10 years. I think we'd all agree that's that's pretty good outcome. A decade yeah. of growth as fast as those three. And then let's say at the end of that, instead of having these crappy profit margins that in aggregate they have, they end up with the highest profit margins of any of those companies, which is Google. So they end up with Google's profit margins, 10 years of growth as high as Apple, Amazon, and Google. Now, our boring group of companies in the next 10 years, they grow about, they grow earnings about half as fast as they have in the last 10. I think that would be a terrible outcome, but possible. So they only grow 5%. They only grow profits 5% a year for the next decade. Play that out over a decade. In 2032, 10 years from now, in our group of companies, you will have earned $1.3 trillion. You will have earned the entire market cap. Group two, even with those crazy assumptions of high growth, high margins, you'll have only earned $600 billion, half as much. And in wow. 2032, they will still be earning less annually. They will still earn less annually. <laughs> so uh, to me, that's crazy. And I, it, it's not this week crazy, but it's this time of the market crazy. And I don't know when that gap is going to close, but I sure love what we own versus uh, where, the, where those crazy valuations are. Chris, that is the most thought out crazy thing I think we've ever had. Fleece, you got to check his math on all that, right? Go, <laughs> Absolutely. Go check his <laughs> I, I'll send it to you. Though. By the way, they, our group would be earning $154 billion and, and that group one would be $130 billion. And I'm, by the way, giving some of them a little generous credit for uh, the, some of their more aggressive accounting, but I'll, I'll leave that aside. <laughs> That's fascinating. I was I was wondering if Chris was going to say he could buy a whole lot of Bitcoin. With all of that <laughs> <too>. <laughs> and Bitcoin will still be earning zero. Uh, <laughs> and it will probably. still be worth less. <laughs> Let's see. All right. Well, we're going to have to get Chris back in 2032 and, and uh, see how that, that turned out. <laughs> see if his math was right. I'm guessing he's probably right, though. Chris Davis, Felice Brands, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we can do it again. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, guys. I enjoyed it. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pell of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.